Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus! From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Welcome back, Spectacular fans. I'm your host, Greg Bashansky, and we're hoping Zach will join us shortly. We'll see, but um, until he does, my brother will be joining us here, for, joining us for the first time in Spectacular Radio, my brother, Alex Bashansky. Hello, everyone. And joining us as usual, we are always honored and delighted to have as our guest the supervising producer and story editor of Spectacular Spider-Man, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hello, everyone. Yeah, so, so Greg, with 2016 coming to an end, uh, what are you up to lately? Um, I am working on Young Justice, and I'm working on the second World of Warcraft Traveler novel. Young Justice, finally. I mean, that's. So, I was so thrilled when I heard the news. I mean, it, it's great to hear. I really look forward to hearing that. I, no ETAs yet, I assume? Say again? No estimated time of arrival? But I don't know. I'm really thrilled to see it. Well, yeah. How, how often does a show like this come back? Uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty amazing. Uh, you know, the fans were great, and they really helped us get it back. It's uh, kind of stunning. Brandon and I are working on it. We're really psyched, and uh, so we're all good. So the Keep Engine Young Justice hashtag worked. <laughs> Excellent. And everyone listening to this, if you're a Gargoyles fan, we live again, hashtag. Keep tweeting that. That'd be good. <laughs> More work for Weisman. I don't think anyone will say no to that. Yeah, Greg, that's my my life's goal is to keep you as busy as possible. That's good. That's my life's goal too. <laughs> Excellent. So we're on the same page. So, moving on to Spectacular Spider-Man. Before we dive into the episode, we are finally into the second season. Were there any changes in the production of the show? Changes behind the scenes? I know a lot happened with the network change and moving from um, Kids WB or was it the CW at the time? I forget. Over to Disney XD. It, I think it was Kids WB still. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, the the main thing is is that when we went into production on season two, we didn't know who the network was going to be. We didn't have any network notes. We didn't have anyone uh, other than Sony and Marvel sort of looking over our shoulder, um, which uh, is good. Not that Disney was a problem once they did come aboard, but it, it's always nice to have fewer people telling you what to do. Um, and uh, we just proceeded with the original plan that we had from day one, more or less, and um, and began our first arc of season two, which was a four-episode arc. And it was a really fun arc. We're going to be talking about that very soon. And uh, I think it's really, the timing that we're talking about this episode right now, for me, in a lot of ways, really, it, it's really, the timing is impeccable just because we're about to have a snowstorm here, and the snow in this episode is beautiful. 
How did that go? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. go on. I mean, one of the things that was fun about the series, hard also, but fun is that, you know, we were playing this out sort of real time, and so this was winter, and we had the snowfall. It meant that, you know, all the characters, you know, a lot of shows don't do this because then they have to design winter clothes for their characters. They have to take all their BGs and um, add snow and stuff like that, but we went for it, and I think it really helped the series as a whole sort of move from that late summer of September all the way into, you know, through winter and into the spring. It, it really lent a uh, verisimilitude to the show. Yeah, it's not something you really see very often unless you've pointed out. I mean, I mean, sometimes you'll just see, you'll see winter if they do a standard Christmas episode. I, every now and then you'll see snow on the ground, you'll see characters dressed in winter clothes, but it's usually just for that one episode. I mean, and um, it does seem like it's something harder to get across. I mean, as I recall, even on Gargoyles, you only had like snow in a couple of ep- a handful of episodes of uh, Reawakening, uh, The Price. Yeah, I mean, we, I, it's something that matters to me to sort of try and uh, um, get that feeling of real life in there, and that means the seasons particularly, you know, ironic, I guess, because I, I'm i a West Coast boy myself, Southern California. We don't have a hell of a lot of, uh, we don't have a hell of a lot of things like snow here and not even a ton of rain, but... Um, it seems to me, you know, I keep doing these shows set in New York or in other uh, places, and, and so, you know, I want it to, to be real. Well, you certainly captured how cold it can get. <laughs> I still wince every time I see that scene where Spidey jumps into the river to rescue, well, you, Greg, from freezing <laughs> to death and drowning. Truck driver me, that's right. <laughs> oh, it's it's so hard just thinking about how cold that water must have been. It was very cold. Mm-hmm. Very, very cold. So moving on, this episode also introduces, um, for the first time, Stan Lee. We've got to talk about old Stan. I mean, uh, I, almo- I almost got a chance to see him at New York Comic Con this year. It's supposed to be his last appearance, but his line was so long. By the time I got there, his tickets were sold out anyway that I didn't get a chance to see him or really get up and shake his hand. So that's something I really feel bad about. But um, I guess I'm telling my own personal Stan Lee story before I hear about how you got Stan Lee onto Spectacular Spider-Man because that was I loved it the first time I saw it and I still love it today. Well, you know, there's a tradition, obviously, of, of, of Stan, Mr. Cameo himself, appearing in all these Marvel productions and in live action, and we were like, well, we're a Marvel production, we should get our cameo of Stan in there, and so uh, we wrote this part, uh, a little funny part for a uh, um, dock worker named Stan, who uh, inspired a little bit by a Billy Crystal character from Saturday Night Live. Um who uh, just can't believe what's going on around him. And we called up Stan's people and asked if he'd be in it. And he said yes, and he came in, and he was really terrific. I mean, and, you know, everyone in the production were huge fans of his, and he must have signed a lot of scripts and a lot of posters and uh, came in and read the lines and was really funny. I mean, Stan is a really funny guy. I met him uh, uh many times. Um, the first time was back when I was a Disney executive, 
um, and he is a funny guy. Um, you know, he tells a joke every 2.3 seconds like clockwork. I mean, that was my experience of him back in the day. And, uh, um, you know, they may not, may not every single one of them be funny, but a whole lot of them are funny. So by the time, you know, we have lunch and by the time that lunch was over, there were four of us there. We're all laughing so hard. Um, and he's great. And, um, you know, he was nice enough later to put a nice blurb on my first novel. And I happened to run into him just uh, probably about a month ago uh, at a delicatessen in Beverly Hills. And, you know, I never quite sure if he's going to remember me, but I, so I sort of reintroduced myself. And then I sort of gleefully tweeted about it that evening. And, uh, you know, he uh, tweeted back that he was, again, doing a cameo in my life. So, um, uh, I mean, just a great guy um, and tons of fun. And, you know, he's always said very nice things about Spectacular. Uh, and uh, I'm glad he enjoyed doing it. And he was he's really funny in that episode. I mean, it's just one sequence, but he's great in it. And, you know, I would have, if we'd done a third season, I definitely would have wanted to bring him back. Well, you have, well, you have more stories of Stan. Because the funniest line for me was him talking about getting his st- tongue stuck in a pole. Because I've always wanted to see that image. I don't know why, but that's what sticks in my head. Commission Sheik's to try it. I might have to do that. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was just great. I mean, Stan, I mean, I still think he's going to turn out to be Uatu the Watcher at the end of these Marvel movies if he... I hate to say this because of his age, but if he lives long enough to cameo in the Infinity War movies. Well, I assume he's going to live forever, so that shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> we can CG him. <laughs> yeah, they just said that with Peter Cushing. <laughs> but okay. Anyway, um, moving on. This episode also introduces a Spidey villain that I've always been very fond of. But I've noticed people either really love him or really hate him. I've always really loved him. Mysterio. I mean, how did he go about adapting Mysterio to um, to the uh, show. What was your adaptation? What was your thought processes behind him? Well, you know, everyone, big-time comics fans all know that Mysterio uses special effects and etc. to fake magic. But, you know, we wanted to introduce this character for the first time, so it was really important to me that for the first big chunk of the episode, at least two-plus acts worth, um, that Mysterio comes across as a sorcerer. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't want to reveal up front that this guy was, was faking it. I wanted it to play like, uh, no, this is magic, and he's casting these spells, and he's attacking technology, and etc. cetera. And, um, and then, you know, what was sort of fun is, is we wrote the part as this sort of... Um, wry, devilish thing, and so um, I thought about casting um, oh my god what, I just had the name in my head, it just flew out uh, help me out uh, Xander Berkeley thank you um, casting Xander because Xander had played uh, Cold Steel and Gargoyles and was so good at it 
and I thought he'd be perfect for this, and he was, but not at all in the way that we anticipated. Um, I was thinking of this sly kind of thing, and he, and we had talked about the character before he went up, and he did this big, over-the-top um, performance with the thing that was making us all laugh, and then I had this moment where I'm like, all right, that's really funny, but we got to pull him back, and then I'm, and I thought to myself, wait, why? Uh, you know, it, it's really good. Why am I uh, trying to change it? And uh, so I decided not to change it. Um, and and Jamie, uh, our director, and Xander just went for it, and it wound up being sort of the signature for our Mysterio, and it fit really well with what he was doing, and it was really funny and fresh and not at all what I was expecting. And again, that's one of the things that you try to do. You know, you've got a vision for something, um, but you've got to keep your mind open and, and your eyes open and your ears open so that if, you know, you've got all these great collaborators. If someone else has a great idea, you've got to be prepared to sort of say, uh, oh, wait, that's better than my original idea. Let's do that. Um, and that, for me, honestly, doesn't come easy. You know, I, I'm not... I, I, I'm definitely a person who sort of tries to stick to the original vision, um, but, uh, you know, if something's good, it's good, and you've got to be open to it. Agreed. Are there any other instances of that happening throughout this series or really any other series you've worked on? Uh, I'm sure it has. I can't off the top of my head think of, like, uh, as big an example as what Xander did, but, you know, there are often things where, particularly in voice recordings where you picture a line being read a certain way and, and, you know, the wonderful actors that I work with bring something totally new and different to it. And you're like, oh, that's not at all what I was thinking, and I really like it. Or you have some actors who uh, are really good at ad-lib and they ad-lib something on the line, and you're like, ooh, I like that. Keep that, you know. Um, well, definitely, because Mysterio going full ham throughout the entire episode was... Definitely the ma- ma- one of the major highlights of it, uh, because I can't imagine mis- him being a, a bit more serious. He's just too goofy of a character at times. In a good way. Yeah, in, you know, in a, in a very good way. Mysterio. Yeah, it was just fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember wa- watching this the first time, and uh, I remember Xander Berkeley did it in uh, season one. He was just Quentin Beck. I'm watching Mysterio the first time watching this, and I'm thinking, did they give Xander instructions to do his best Tim Curry. Oh God! Uh, you know it's funny. I, I see why you say that, but I don't really feel like it is Tim Curry. It's a very different sort of flavor for me. I mean, um, you know, uh, not that we haven't like in Gargoyles directed Tim to be over the top when he was doing his version of old Savarius, and or he was quote unquote acting. But it's still a very different flavor for me than what Tim's done on a lot of my other stuff. Oh, I get it. We're being watched. Is that it? Very well. Yes! I betrayed you. You robbed me of my greatest creation, my ultimate achievement. I only took back what was mine. There, how was that? Oh yeah, Tim's great, and so is Xander. And I would have liked to have eventually heard Tim on the show if they had the right char- if the right character came along. But Xander's just was so wonderful in that role. I mean, and it's like you said, him going over the top like that. It's just it's so out of 
plays for what I'm used to, because like you've mentioned Cold Steel, and when I think of him doing live action, I think of that role he had in the first two seasons of 24 as the uh, semi-heroic director of uh, whatever that organization was who flew the atomic bomb C- into... CTU, uh, yes. CTU, yeah, that was CTU. And, I mean, he normally seems to play this very straight-laced guy. So it was really cool seeing them do something completely against type. Yeah, you know, he was so much fun and did such a great job. It was really great. And he had been great season one, like you said, you know. And, again, playing that character of the waiter and kind of hamming it up a little bit, it all fit with what he did later, but it wasn't a plan. It was sort of... uh, how it, the character evolved and, and and really what Xander brought to it. It was just amazing. Demi-tot Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gr- great moment. And I, I just love that scene where he's unmasked by, uh, quote-unquote, unmasked by Spidey at the end. And he and just when Tinker calls him out on designing the robot to look just like him. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it's the whole actor mentality kind of thing. And... Um, you get a feeling like if if uh, if he had been successful in Hollywood as an actor, he never would have turned to crime. <laughs> but, uh, um, okay, Alex, you just heard it now. Greg gave me an excuse to become a supervillain. <laughs> as if you needed one. <laughs> okay, and uh, also, I'm um, speaking of voice cast casting. Tom Adcox returns to your works and to work in this and you know I obviously I loved him on Gargoyles as Lexington and and you've used him as a villain since then I'm not complaining it's just a I never expected that when I heard Lexington but he's so good at it yeah although I can't take credit for the idea of using him for a villain uh, Jonathan Klein used him in Nazca as a villain um, and he was so good in that uh, that I'm like oh man I didn't even think of him for that uh so, you know, it, it, again, it's one of these things where you just got to keep your mind open, and then it's sort of like, wow, he works great as a villain. It's so much fun. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, even as a villain, something like Clarion and Young Justice, you sort of feel like, yeah, that's the Tom Adcox type. It's Lexington gone evil kind of thing. But, um, <laughs> but Tinker was a very different role, you know, um, older man, um very, uh, you know, very intelligent and everything like that, but it, it had a different, again, it, it's one of these things where um, we're just sort of having fun with the kind of thing. And, of course, you know, Tom is one of my best friends in the world, so it's always great to work with him. We have such a good time together, and well, that was terrific. Yeah, that's what I got to say. I really like this Tinker, because most of the time the Tinker in the college is only a guy you see hired to make weapons for somebody else, but him working as a partner with Mysterio, that I enjoyed the most. Most because he he doesn't really get much development here. Here, you can tell he has a history with Beck and Chameleon, and I'm just wondering what other connections he might have had down the line. Yeah, I mean, you know, with the whole idea was to try and track all the characters and not just have characters vanish, but sort of like, okay, who's in prison, who's where... Who's working for whom? How is it shifting? Um, we wanted to try and keep that that sort of um, again in an attempt to make it feel a little more real. Try and keep track of those sort of things, as opposed to a lot of comics and a lot of shows where, all right, well, such and such 
got her busted by the superhero at the end of this issue or this episode. Uh, next time we see him, he's just attacking again. It's like, well, wait a minute. I thought he was in prison. You know, it's like, well, we wanted to keep track of that, so we sort of tracked him getting out of prison and and uh, things like that and, and the whole idea that he's sort of working for Chameleon but now working for the Master Planner, working... You know, but with Mysterio's kind of an ongoing partner, that was just, again, sort of fun for us. And then he ends up later on doing some work for the big man in the gang war by upgrading the uh, Enforcer. So, did he, I mean, maybe we'll talk a little bit about, about that later, maybe not, because it's a small scene, but he, did he turn against the Master Planner later, or is he just a complete mercenary? I think you got to figure he's pretty much just, you know, you go where the money is, and uh, Master Planner was sort of uh, out of the, um, not paying for a while, and so uh, he went with, uh, you know, took this job here, this job there, that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And uh, one of the biggest scenes for me in this episode is the dinner scene. We just get so much. Uh, oh. I feel we get so much world building in that one small scene. With we have Osborne, the Connors, the Warrens, and we'll definitely talk more about Miles later. But I love seeing the actual difference between the two Warren brothers. I mean, they, just right down to them having different accents. I mean, what do you figure the right, dynamic? So- I mean, they're both played by Brian George, and again, I mean, I feel like this whole podcast is about me praising the actors, um, but we had a fantastic cast, and so that was the idea that um, the older brother, uh, the high school teacher, um, was a guy who uh, was born outside the United States and emigrated late enough that he still had that accent, and... um, uh, his younger brother, who he probably helped put through college and everything like that, you know, the college professor who was born in the U.S. and is more, you know, uh, modern sensibility and uh, edge to him. And so it was Brian again, but this time without the accent. Younger, a little bit handsomer probably, uh, certainly uh, less overweight and um, and Brian just is great at distinguishing those two characters, not simply by the accent, but also by attitude and by uh, uh, performance in such a way that, you know, he's playing both characters, and yet you never want to. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a fantastic actor. I remember I was shocked a couple of years after Spectacular aired when I realized that he was uh, a character on Seinfeld that I had seen in reruns many times. Uh Alex, you know who I'm talking about? He, he opened a Pakistani restaurant. Oh God, it, Babu! Yeah, him. That, that, it, it, oh God, it's Babu. That's right. Yeah, that's Brian George. Yeah, great actor. And um, I also love the way Norman pressures the Connors into rehiring Peter. I mean, without actually seeming like he's putting pressure on them. I'm sorry, I uh, someone knocked on my door. So. Uh, What'd you say? I love the way that Norman kind of pressures the Connors into rehiring Peter without actually making it seem like he's pressuring them. He's just uh, saying, oh, I like that guy. He's an impressive kid. Yeah, it's not just Norman. I mean, basically, I think that um, uh, that Dr. Connor had everybody ganging up on her. You know, in other words, uh, 
uh, Norman likes Peter. Uh, uh, Aaron Warren, he's one of his best students. You know, uh, Miles Warren is like, well, all I care about is talent. This is the smartest kid. Why aren't we using him? Um, and, you know, Curtis is sort of like, well, uh, no, you know, with a lot of awareness that he's got a lot to need redemption for, um, you know, maybe they should be giving Peter a second chance. And then, you know, um, uh, the other, what's her first name? I'm, God, my memory Martha is Martha uh, What? Martha. Yeah, Martha turns to Emily Osborne, hoping that she'll sort of, you know, I don't know if she's looking for female solidarity or just another voice to sort of say, well, look, you know, if she feels strong, but, you know, all Emily does is cut her carrot or whatever. And so, you know, feeling very outnumbered, Martha goes, all right, fine, we'll give Peter a second chance. But I don't think that really was about, for me, about, not that Norman's above it, but I don't feel like that was a Norman manipulation scene. It's, it's Aaron that brings it up, for starters. And uh, um, and it's just about, oh, yeah, I like that kid. Uh, and everyone sort of feels that way about Peter, uh, one way or another. And that leaves Martha without a lot of support for her position, and so she acquiesces. Peer yeah, that scene's one of those scenes where I really wish we'd gotten to know who Emily Osborne is. Not in that scene itself, but later on. I mean, Emily, is, for me, has always been the biggest blank slate, because I can mostly figure out by extrapolating from the comics where everyone else could have ended up going, or other characters, but she was dead in the comics, so, I mean, I really wanted to see what you would have done with her eventually. And I know you're not going to tell me, but I'm going to keep on trying. <laughs> I don't know, she really liked that dinner. <laughs> I mean, we had definitely had plans for her in season three, um, but we, uh, but we, you know, just never got to do it. So it's too bad. I mean, um, but you know, part of the fun of season one and two was, in essence, it comes down to stuff we'll talk about when we get to the end of season two. But with her, but um, the idea was just to have a little bit of fun with her and. Uh, and then have her in position for a more interesting role in season three. And well, when he said that Marina Sirtis is going to voice her, well, that kind of gives me a little bit of a vague idea of what kind of person she might have been. Because you like to cast her a certain way. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm not going to admit or deny anything, so we'll go with that. Fair enough, fair enough. And this also leads on to... Norman offering to mentor Peter, which I always thought was interesting, and I always wish we'd gotten to see a little bit more of. I mean, we get one more scene later on, but there, but I mean, I, I guess I just wanted more of it because I just love the dynamic between those characters, not just on this show, but I've loved it for decades, really. I mean, Alex is a longtime Superman fan too; he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Like, oh, definitely. Yeah, and you know, I uh, definitely feel that way. Uh, it's a lot of. Um, fun to see them together and I would have liked to have had more screen time for the two of them and for that mentorship thing and you know there's certain plot lines you start that you realize partway through are relatively low priority um, and so you just get sort of a flavor for it or a couple examples and you sort of hope that stands in for an off-screen bigger relationship sort of thing but uh um, but, you know, it was a nice moment here in this episode. 
and he's creepy even when he's peeling a hard-boiled egg. I mean, I just love that little bit. Yeah, I mean, that we cribbed from a movie called Angel Heart, where Robert De Niro was literally playing the devil. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to find that later. Well, if there's a devil in Spider-Man's world, it's Norman Osborn. We don't talk about one more day. In the Please film. don't. I, I, I need to stay sober tonight. <laughs> so, um... Moving on throughout this, I also, I mean, really love that scene between Gwen and MJ. I mean, we've talked about their bonding, but their bond just keeps deepening as friends. I just love seeing that proceed. Yeah, you know, it was, there's a great dynamic between a lot of the female characters in the show and the way they interact with each other and um, Glory and MJ and MJ and Gwen and Gwen and Liz. um, You know, you get as the series progresses, a lot of these various combinations in there. And it's, it's always really interesting to me. I mean, um, there's a lot of, you know, it, it doesn't survive the Bechdel test, but, um, you know, I've got the guys talking about the girls as well as the girls talking about the guys. But to me, what's interesting is, you know, if you're a teenager, a lot of what you talk about is, is, you know, the opposite sex or at any event, the sex you're interested in, um, the gender you're interested in. And that makes up a huge proportion of teenage conversation. <laughs> um, and so it was just sort of, for me, great to, to pair up, you know, get Vanessa and Lacey in the scene together, get, you know, it, it's a lot of fun and, and, uh, and, but it gets, you know, Again, I'm sounding very repetitive here, but it gets down to what feels real to me about um, people connecting and, and that sort of thing. No, no, it's you know, it's great. I love that, and I uh, I think this episode also has some really great action sequences, and um, I love that entire fight at Mysterio Studio where we get background after background, setting after setting, western, science fiction, a giant teddy bear. I mean, it's. Uh, Terrific! I mean, that looked like it was so much fun. You even got a Star Wars reference in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, again, you know, uh, credit where it's due to our wonderful composers, uh, Lola Ritmanis and Michael McQuistian, Chris Carter, because, you know, one of the things that really makes that work is that you've got the Western music playing in the saloon, you've got the um, sci-fi music playing for the sci-fi scene, with the theremin even and and uh, all this stuff that really gives a flavor of each location so it just makes it that much more fun um, and uh, we just had some good times with that and of course it's always fun to fight robots because you can really tear them apart <laughs> uh, in a way that you know with S&P you can't do necessarily with actual human beings <laughs> Actually, a quick question. Did he have any ideas for that fight that was scrapped? Because it being in a movie studio just seems like a endless box of ideas that you could do with play with, like having Spider-Man fight a samurai or, or ancient Greek. Hey, gotta save something for future Mysterial appearances. Can't you let him in? Yeah, I think we pretty much hit the highlights that we were... I mean, I don't recall there being something where it's like, oh, we just don't have room for this. We pretty much did what we set out to do. I know, and it was re- and it was so much fun. And uh, one thing we definitely have to ask you about: Donald Menken. 
and you voicing them, voicing them. I mean, uh, I know you've done some voiceover a little bit, so um, talk about that. Uh, God, I'm blanking out. What did Mankin do in this episode? You voiced um, him. <laughs> talk about well, that. I know I voiced him. I always voiced him, but what was he? What was his role in this one? I mean, I, what did he actually do in this episode? Oh, he just he, he just, called up Norman, then he got knocked out by Mysterio. I'm just saying, how did the how did the process go about for you to decide I'm going to voice him? I mean, uh, you know, I wanted to voice someone in the show. Um, I wanted to voice someone who uh, wouldn't that I wouldn't be bringing the show down by voicing the character. So someone within my uh, rather semi-limited acting range, I guess. I mean, I actually don't think my acting range is that limited, but I I didn't want to take the chance of voicing someone uh, that I might be messing up. And this seemed like a character um, very functionary with a sort of uh, on rare occasions, a wry sort of sense of humor that I could handle. Um, and so it just seemed like a good uh, option for me uh, to choose that character. And so, you know, it was a lot of fun to play Mankin always, and um, and I enjoyed that. I mean, it was just amazing seeing him the first time, because as far as obscure characters go, Mencken is really obscure. Uh, I don't know. I feel like we did tons of obscure characters on this show. I know. Yeah. I don't think he was that obscure relative to like Coach Smith or um, Sinjin Devereaux or something like that. You know, it, it, everything's relative. So this is quite um, true. Or the FBI agents who are coming up in about three episodes. He'll talk about that later. But okay. Uh, all right. I have a question. I mean, this is not just future episodes, but. This is something I thought was a great set from Mysterio. It was which one it was the real Mysterio and which one is a, is a robot? Because I feel like every appearance of Mysterio from this point forward, you couldn't tell which was what, which one was real, which one wasn't. Like, was the one who was in prison a ro- robot? Which robot? Which or did the did Beck ever actually show up in person in the show? Um, there are definitely moments when Beck shows up in person. I mean, uh, certainly from the standpoint of uh, season one, that was the real Beck, because there's a scene, it may have only, I can't remember if it was one of the cut scenes or not, but um, there was a scene that showed um, both uh, Tinkerer and, and Beck being, uh, uh, are, you know, already being replaced in prison by uh, hologram technology and, and stuff like that. And, um, but yeah, you know, we tried to play a little fair. I think that guy who comes out at the end after Mysterio has quote unquote been taken away, um, and Tinker is talking to him. I, I think that's the real back. Um, but yeah, you know, there got to be a point where we're sort of like, well, maybe you'll never know now who, which, whether this is back or not, but the robots are that good. And that's the perfect way to play this character. You should never be 100% certain, and that's one of the things I liked about him, because, mo- I mean, like you said, I was earlier in the show, I was happy when you didn't spell out his shtick right away, because most adaptations actually have him, when he appears the first time, introduce himself actually as Master of Illusion, and I kind of think that when you do that, you're really uh, missing an opportunity. 
Well, that's how we felt because, you know, obviously from the second appearance on, you know it's just illusion, you know it's just sleight of hand, you know it's just technology, etc. But let's at least get that first appearance with, uh, ooh, who is, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, they're Spider-Man fans who know exactly who Mysterio is from moment one, but, you know, for a new audience, you want to take advantage of that notion that, oh, is Spider-Man fighting a sorcerer now? In fact, we did bring magic in later. Uh, in fact, not very shortly. Um, but uh, but it wasn't really with Mysterio. But you want to fool the audience, at least for a little bit, to, into thinking that that's what we're doing. Now we'll be talking more about magic on this show next month. I mean, that's going to be a conversation. And I'm looking forward to discussing that one. And, uh, I mean, it was just a fantastic episode all around and a fantastic start to the new season and at the same time one of the things I like about it is it doesn't really even have a season premiere feel it just feels like oh we're picking up right where we left off and that's a good thing sometimes I mean and I really enjoyed it, it was just like oh, and the next chapter in Peter Parker's life well there's definitely an aspect of that I mean you know it was the next it was the beginning of a new arc and it was um uh you know, but it, it was sort of picking up, like you said, a little bit where we left off at the end of Thanksgiving and um, sort of, but there, you know, I, I remember feeling like, well, we need to reiterate all this uh, um, stuff that took place last season, and and we did. And, uh, you know, all the salient points that you needed to know from the previous season are present in the episode. And... Um, and then you just cross your fingers and hope the audience likes it, I guess. Yeah. And I really love that dream sequence the episode opens with, with Peter being attacked by Venom. I'll admit the first time I saw it, it had me going before you revealed it was a dream. And usually I'm good at catching those, but the first time I bought into it, and I was just asking, how, what, when, how, and, but... And it was effectively creepy, and it also... Like you said, we keep praising the voice actors, but Ben Diskin, who I loved talking to last time we all got together, was just so great in that role that uh, I, that helped that helped me buy into it. I mean, it was just a really. I nice mean, that, we had such a great cast on that show. You know, you always want any excuse to to have those actors in as often and as doing as much as possible. It's just fun, you know, um, because they're all so good at what they do. Indeed, just about everyone on the show is perfect casting. No, I'm not even going to say just about everyone. Everyone on this show is perfect casting. It was everyone was terrific. I mean, they really embodied those characters and this adaptation of the show. I mean, I still hope one day that the stars will align and will somehow, in some form, get more. Because again, my life's goal is to keep you as busy as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Watch, I'll. Win the lotto one day, invest, buy enough stock in Disney, and that's never going to happen. But I'm fantasizing. <laughs> well, I think. Well, I just want to go go back and actually touch upon MJ and Gwen's friendship in this episode because we did talk we did, about that. But well, not well, well. We did talk a little bit, but you see how MJ is actually kind of pushing Gwen into a relationship with P Peter Moore in this. That's an interesting aspect. I do like that. Well, I don't know about pushing her, I think what she has done is she's recognized that Gwen has real feelings for Peter, and MJ's just very smart about people. Um, and what she recognizes, even if Peter is 
at times too dense to figure it out himself, is that Peter really feels the same way about Gwen, and that Gwen, uh, you know, next to maybe Aunt May, is the single most important person in his life. And, um, and yeah, he's a 16-year-old boy, so he gets distracted by a pretty face or whatever, but, you know, what MJ sees is that that's something real between those two, and so she wants them both to be happy. Um, and so, she, you know, as the season progresses, you'll see MJ trying to get Peter to focus on what he really wants, just as Aunt May is doing, frankly, and you get um, her trying to give Gwen more confidence um, and um, and you know it's a it's a good sort of nurturing role for MJ that you don't necessarily expect because we think of her as sort of like the bombshell, which she is, of course. But at the same time, she, you know she's got this heart of gold, and and um, so you want to sort of and you know she likes Peter too, but not in the same way. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. And. You know, we'll see more of that as the season progresses, but the fact of the matter is is that, um, you know, uh, her feelings for Peter are, are much more platonic, and she likes the kid a lot, um, but he's pretty immature and not really the kind of guy she's looking for. The truth is, is at the moment she's not looking for anybody just to have a good time. But what she sees is two people who kind of maybe belong together, so... She meddles a little, but in a very sort of light, helpful way, um, hopefully not manipulative. I just think she's trying to get them to both be honest with their feelings and then be honest with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and she has some success, you know. And Pete has this great moment at the end here where he has gotten the letter and the check from the bugle, and he's like, oh, i got to tell Gwen, and then he realizes with Aunt May sort of looking on and smiling going duh um, you know that uh, that means something the first person I wanted to tell was Gwen so that's got to reveal something Um, and of course you know they've both been sort of dodging talking about the kiss and everything like that Um, and so you know it's just continuing the evolution of these two characters into adulthood, or at least into young adulthood, from being kind of dopey kids. Um, and uh, and then, of course, you know, the problem is, is well, we'll see this more next episode, but get sort of distracted, not by another woman, but by Norman Osborn sort of cutting him off from doing what he wanted to do. Um seems to be a thing that Norman tends to do. (laughs) Right, although not intentionally in this case. This isn't Norman manipulating Peter away from Gwen Stacy. This is Norman with his own agenda. Um, It just happens to time out badly for Pete, and that's part of the Parker luck and that kind of thing. But it's also choices Peter makes. He could sit there and say, I'm sorry, I really appreciate it, but I can't come to breakfast today. There's something urgent I need to do. He doesn't have to go into details but he chooses not to. And, and on one level, it's very logical the choice he makes, but, um, you know, you can't just sort of blame Norman for it. Norman wasn't trying to thwart Gwen and Peter. He was simply trying 
to do something nice for Peter in a way that something that he wanted and, and in his forceful way sort of talked Peter into going that route. And, and Peter then could have, you know, felt like that breakfast with Norman went 30 hours. He could have immediately gone to Gwen right after that. But he lost momentum. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's also very real, that, you know, you get a notion in your head and you're like, I've got to go do this, I've got to go do this now, and then, you know, something distracts you or something interrupts you, and and you then have the opportunity to still do what you were planning to do, but by then doubts have started to move in or other thoughts are in your head and you, you just don't quite get up the energy that you had five seconds ago. And that's one of the things that I love about your writing on, on shows like this in general. I mean, there's really an, a, a strong understanding of very real human nature. I mean, I find in a lot of, not just animation, but in a lot of TV shows and movies, people go through the motions. They go from here to there because the plot requires them to, even if they're not necessarily having these creeping doubts and behaving like real human beings who are getting distracted and stuff like this. I mean, Peter being distracted being distracted as he is during his first arc and overall, you hardly ever see that on television or in storytelling. Well, I mean, I think you see it more and more these days, actually. I mean, I, I think we're in a sort of second golden age of television. There's a lot of really great stuff on, um, but I certainly know what you mean in the sense that, you know, a lot of times what I grew up on, um, particularly before, um, frankly, Hill Street Blues. I know I've, I've preached Hill Street over and over again on this podcast, but, um, you know, before the advent of Hill Street Blues, which really, I think, changed television for good and ever, um, a lot of what you saw on television was, you know, that kind of status quo TV and and didn't go very deep, even on the show that you wouldn't... I mean, you wouldn't necessarily think a show like Spider-Man needs to go very deep, but of course, if you want it to be good, it has to. And, um, and I think... But I think nowadays, that's more the standard. It's more what's expected. It is true, the second golden age of TV, and at some point I need to pick up the Hill Street Blues box set. I keep, it's on my Amazon wish list. I'm going to get to it, I promise. <laughs> and um, if we have nothing else left to say about the episode, I guess we can move on. Greg, do you have anything you want to pimp? You know, I always do. Uh, uh, so there are my novels, for starters. There's Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam. Um, those are the first two books in the Reign of the Ghost series. Then there's the first book in the World of Warcraft Traveler series that just came out this past November. It's called World of Warcraft Traveler. And I'm hard at work on the second book in that series now. Um, there is The Fall and Rise of Captain Adam. It's a six-issue miniseries by myself uh, and Terry Bates as, as uh, the writers. And Will Conrad did some just phenomenally gorgeous artwork on it and that comes out in January the first issue does I mean um, and uh, let's see you know uh, I'm not on Shimmer and Shine anymore but a bunch of my episodes are still yet to come and so if you've got preschool kids I think you know I'd recommend Shimmer and Shine 
uh, on Nickelodeon or Nick Jr. Um, and, uh, you know, there's still a bunch of trades out there that you could pick up. There's Starburn and Nightmask, which I'm very proud of, which is my um, six-issue series from Marvel. And there's uh, Star Wars Kanan uh, is out as well uh, in an omnibus 12-issue collection of the entire Star Wars Kanan series. And so I'd recommend that as well. I'm proud of all these things. Sounds like I'm proud of everything I do, and the truth is because I am. <laughs> I'm immodest in that way. So uh, um, I do hope people will pick that stuff up. And there's also the Reign of the Ghost audio play, which is an unabridged um, full cast uh, version of the Reign of the Ghost novel with actors like Josh Keaton, uh, Marina Sirtis, Brent Spiner, uh, Tom Adcox, some of the people we talked about today, uh, and other great talents like Edward Asner and um, Deborah Strang, who played Aunt May, and um, Steve Bloom, who was Green Goblin, and um, just a great sort of uh, 20 actors playing 30 roles, full musical score by uh, the same people who did the score for Spectacular Spider-Man and Young Justice, and uh, um, sound effects the works. It's like a four-hour movie in your head. So that's available on gumroad.com, G-U-M-R-O-A-D, gumroad.com slash reign of the ghosts. Yeah, I was I was so happy to be a contributor for that. I finally got my shout out from my video shout out from Vanessa Marshall the other day, and that was a hell of a lot of fun. Hey, Greg, it's Vanessa. Just wanted to say thank you so much for your support. You are so awesome. And I hope I see you soon and we can have some Vader tots. All right. New York Comic Con, you going? Give a girl a shout out. All right. Bye. But yeah, it was a, that was a great production. And um, I'm looking forward to finally getting my uh, copy of the of the box set for that. Yeah, those uh, started mailing out this week, so uh, we have you know over 300 to send out. So it's going to take a little bit of time to get them all out, but but they are heading out. Uh, people have started receiving them, and and the rest will be coming soon. Starting with the domestic ones, those uh, backers are in the U.S., and then as soon as those are done, we'll move on to the international backers, and we're really trying our best to get all these uh, rewards on that project fulfilled. I'm so sorry it's taken as long as it's taken, but um, there were really circumstances beyond our control that prevented us from doing this quicker. Well, it's finally here. It's finally coming, and it was worth it, and I loved listening to it. It was an amazing production, and I hope eventually there's another one because that was just – it was amazing. You've described it as an animated movie without the animation, and I think that is apt. It, that's really what it felt like. Well, great. I'm very proud of it. Excellent, yeah, and yeah. um, and um, thank you for your time as usual, Greg. It is always a pleasure to have you on and to have you joining us. And we'll be back next month, hopefully being rejoined by Zach and by Kristen to talk about Craven the Hunter. And um, so spectacular fans, keep tuning in and uh, remember tweet the hashtag We Live Again. Let's keep this man. Very busy. And well, thanks, guys. This has been fun, and I'll talk to you guys soon. This is our last show of 2016, and um, 
It's a year that I'm personally happy to see come to an end, and let's hope that we have a, a better 2017. I say with ambivalence. 2016 has been one calamity after another. And while it will be remembered for the giant calamity we all just witnessed, we shouldn't lose sight of the other multiple ways this has been a shitty year. If we could erase 2016 off the calendar, we'd be perfectly good with me. Pretty rotten year. I think most people would, would admit that. It totally blew. It was awful. This world is feeling scarier. It's feeling a little colder. For EU, it was a really crappy year. The whole Brexit was kind of a mess. Just a lot of like hatred to a lot of groups. I think I think that's like been the staple of this year. Syrian refugee crisis, pretty terrible. Lots of uh, sexism being very blatant. I think it's absolutely disgusting what the city of Flint did to to its residents. The New York Jets suck. The Yankees missed the playoffs. I didn't like Kevin Durant going to um <laughs> going to Golden State. <laughs> that was a chicken shit move. Some asshole stole my watch in Miami. I got broken up with. That was pretty shitty. I had a girlfriend for three and a half years. She broke up with me about two months ago. My landlord is a piece of shit. I met Bruce Willis here like a week ago and I asked him for a picture and he said no, so that made me feel bad. My son is hitting puberty and he's being a real pain in the ass. I got um, all mauled by a dog on my birthday, so that was like a cherry on top of like a shitty year. Menopause. Never forget Harambe. Harambe's out there listening. He took shots for us. We should take shots for him. Too many deaths. Prince. Prince is my man. I miss Prince. Prince, I mean, that was just... I think the worst is the David Bowie's death. David Bowie. What the fuck? Bowie? That was my big one. Five dog, man. Come on, man. Shout out to, to Q-Tip, man. Tribe Called Quest. I grew up on that. Muhammad Ali, that was one of the biggest. What he represents for black people in America, that's a huge deal for me. Oh, like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Oh, God. Gene Wilder. Alan Rickman, fucking Snape, dude. Oh, yeah. 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 This year did suck. Fuck 2016. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck 2016. Fuck you, 2016. Bad year. Shit year. 2016. It's for you. Fuck 2016. Fuck it a lot. Fuck 2016. I'm fuck Donald Trump. Fuck 2016. CNN won't let me say this. I'm New Year's Eve, but get fuck 2016. Fuck 2016. Vice President is this What is this, mayonnaise? Fuck 2016. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck you, 2016. 2016. Fuck off. 2016. Falls well below my standards of quality. Fuck 2016. Fuck you, 2016. Hey, 2016. Go punch yourself in the dick. Fuck this year. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck you, John Oliver. Hey, 2016. Fuck you. And hey, 2017. Fuck you, too. I hate you already. Fuck, fuck you, 2016. You're asking me. Fuck 2016. Fuck 2016! 2016, from the bottom of my heart, go fuck yourself. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck you.
That's our show. Thanks so much for watching. Let's all try harder next year. Good night. put your tongue on the side of the ship and it sticks there? I hate when I do that.